Today's podcast, we discuss a wide range of topics which are going to be useful to all doctors. And I was thinking about how to sum it all up for this introduction. So we talk about investments and the fees that financial advisors charge for investments and why and what is a reasonable fee to pay for investment advice. We also talk about protection, how to get the best deal. And again, we talk about fees and where these costs come from and how you can get the best deal. But really, the theme that unites everything on today's episode, and in fact, everything that we do at Medics Money, is valid consent and transparency. So let me explain a bit more why. The process of getting financial advice and finding a financial advisor should be as transparent as the process we as doctors undertake when consenting a patient for a treatment or procedure. So when we're consenting our patients, we talk about the risks, the benefits, and the other options in detail and we give each patient the knowledge that they need to make the best decision for them and the process should be no different for getting financial advice so before you commit to a potentially financially life-changing decision you should understand the risks the benefits and the alternative options including the risks of doing nothing and historically some sectors of the financial advice industry have been very reluctant to consent you properly, often omitting key information. Too often, unscrupulous salespeople masquerading as advisors have preyed on the financial naivety and the trusting nature of doctors and dentists and other healthcare professionals. Not anymore. At Medics Money, I hope that we give you the financial knowledge that you need to make the best decision for you. And we do that using this podcast, our free ebook, our tax guides, our blog, and our free webinars. And I think the industry is changing and Medics Money is leading that change. And we're using the principles of valid consent so that you can decide what the best financial options are for you. We also hold the advisors on Medics Money to the highest standards, and you'll hear a bit more about that in the podcast, but we encourage unprecedented levels of transparency from them, such as displaying guide prices for their fees for advice. We also have our Medics Money approved criteria that all the advisors on Medics Money must meet or exceed, and me and Ed interview each advisor personally before they're approved to join us. And as you would expect, we also hold ourselves to the same level of transparency. Our website outlines exactly how Medics Money is funded, and I encourage everyone to have a look at that and read it. And we even publish our accounts online for everyone to see. It's our financial year end at the end of May, so the accounts will be going up there very soon. Last year's are up there already. Uh, so some sectors of the financial industry are going to find this episode a little bit uncomfortable, but we make no apologies for that. Me and Ed were quite happy just being doctors that we trained to do, helping our colleagues and their friends out with financial issues and living a low-profile life, avoiding controversy and not broadcasting to thousands of people each week and running a website which gets thousands of hits every month. But we were so frustrated with the status quo of doctors and dentists not getting the financial education that they need and unscrupulous salespeople taking advantage of that naivety that we stuck our heads above the parapet, made Medics money, and we are so glad that you all find it so useful. So let's get into today's slightly controversial episode. As ever, the information on this podcast is for information purposes only and does not constitute any form of financial advice. Welcome to the Medics Money Podcast. My name is Dr. Tommy Perkins and I'm a GP. And my name is Dr. Ed Cantelo, a GP, but also a chartered accountant and a chartered tax advisor. And yes, you did hear that right. Not only is Ed a doctor, he's also a chartered accountant and a tax advisor. Medics Money empowers doctors and other professionals like you to make better financial decisions. So on today's podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by a veteran of the Medics Money podcast, Mr. Guy Roper. Hello, Tommy. So for those that haven't heard your previous podcasts, uh, I mean, you know, you were on the early podcast when there was probably only about, you know, 50 people listening. Um, now there's about 12 to 15,000 people a month listening. Oh, my goodness. But don't worry. Um, but just uh, <laughs> tell us a bit about yourself and why you're qualified to talk about today's subject. Yeah, so it's great to be back. Thank you for having me on again. Um, so uh, my name is Guy Roper. I am the owner of Sunrise IFA, um, and I am a chartered financial planner. 
at Sunrise IFA, my business is completely independent. Uh, we specialize in advice for doctors. Almost all of our clients are doctors. And uh, I'm a chartered financial planner, which is effectively the, the, the top level of qualification that an advisor can achieve. Um, so it means, as I'm, as I'm hopefully about to demonstrate, I know my stuff. Um, and when it comes to doctors and their career paths and, and all the stuff that we're going to be talking about today, uh, yeah, I think I'm going to, uh, yeah, I know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And your previous episodes you did on episode nine on ethical investing, which was really popular. And episode 11, uh, we did a sort of uh, the first ever Medics Money Financial Clinic. And you were so popular after those <laughs> that you've been snowed under with work until now. So it's yeah, great indeed. to have you back on the podcast. Um, so should we quickly talk about what Chartered Financial Planner actually means and independence actually means? Well, independence is definitely important to focus on because I know that's a, a big thing with Medics Money. So um, there are effectively two types of financial advisor. There are independent financial advisors and there are restricted financial advisors. Uh, independent advisors like myself can talk about uh, and advise on anything that, that my clients need effectively. So when a client needs um, a product or solution, I can source anything from the available marketplace. Uh, and sometimes clients don't need products or solutions at all. All they need is advice and I can offer that too. Um, a restricted financial advisor is, as the name suggests, much more restricted. So uh, they will only have a, a limited range of products and solutions that they can select from. Um, they are effectively tasked with fitting clients to those products and solutions and selling them the, the best fits. Um, and that is a far less good outcome than independent advice. So I know that Medics Money will only allow independent advisors to be linked on your platform. Um, and yeah, that's in my view, that's absolutely the right decision. Yeah, I think it's absolutely vital for all of those reasons that you mentioned. And in, interestingly, some of the biggest firms advising doctors are restricted. Um, and yeah, the, the, our belief in the benefit of independent advice was a major reason why we set up Medics Money. Because as you say, the independent advisor can get the best product from the whole market for you uh, and is not bound by the restrictions of only being able to offer a limited number of um, products or services. So yeah, independence is absolutely key for us. Um, I've been getting a few emails from restricted advisors, actually, <laughs> um, saying that... They're not really happy that we're promoting independent advice. Um, so restrict if, if if being restricted isn't such a big deal, why don't you put it on the front page of your website that you are restricted and tell us, potential customers like me, doctors, why being restricted is not a problem. Yep. Exactly right. Yeah. If you ask an advisor whether they're independent or not, you get one of two answers. If they're independent, they'll say yes. If they're not independent, they'll give you a very long wordy answer about how they sort of are and it doesn't really matter anyway. You should be very skeptical of that second answer. An independent advisor will be happy to tell you that they are independent and that they can give you advice from anywhere in the marketplace. And it's really important. Uh, and mine and Ed's life would be much easier if we just accepted restricted advisors because then, you know, it would have been e easy for us. But one of the very reasons we set up Medics Money is we believe in independent advice really, really passionately for the reasons you've outlined. So, yeah, uh, I do get a few emails from restricted advisors who are not super happy about it. But I think the key thing as well is that let's get transparency on the go. Yeah, let's talk about why the difference between independent and restricted. And as I said, if restricted is not such a big problem, pop it on the homepage of your website that you are restricted and tell us, doctors, why that's not a problem for us. And um, we'll see what they do. Uh, right, that's probably going to get me loads more emails. And then chartered, you said that was the highest level of qualification. Tell me about yeah. that. Yeah, so so chartered financial planner is uh, the the top level of qualification for uh, for advisors. It means that I passed lots of advanced level qualifications, um, and, and actually I'm also a fellow of the Personal Finance Society. And and fellowship isn't higher than chartered; it's broader. So it means that I've done a, a wider range of things outside of the specific chartered exams um, to achieve fellowship as well. Um, but yes, as I said last time, I have stopped doing exams now, Tommy. I'm far too busy, and I have quite enough of them anyway. <laughs> uh, stop doing exams but always learning so that's great yeah, so let's get into the nitty-gritty today because uh, i'm really excited to get into today's subjects because they're two mm. massive subjects where we see doctors um struggling a lot and hopefully this is going to help them a lot so we've talked about loads on this podcast about why protection is so important and if you've read the ebook you'll read why 
I took out protection arguably too late um, or nearly too late. Uh, and that was for several reasons, really. I didn't think I needed any protection. I thought it was expensive. Uh, I was, being honest, a working class kid trying to hustle their way out of a massive med school debt. And the thought of paying extra money for insurance uh, just wasn't on my radar. But, you know, it was a massive mistake. I'm fully protected now with a young family and uh, habits of uh, high risk uh, sports like kite surfing, surfing and mountain biking. Uh, I've, I'm fully protected. Right. But, you know, tell me a bit when you're actually advising doctors on protection and, and insurance, you know, what do you actually do? What's the benefit of using you? OK, so the insurance stroke protection part of the meeting um, is done with what I like to call a, a what if discussion. Um, it's actually something that doctors can do themselves. So um, individually or as a couple, perhaps if you sit down and consider what if. So what if I was ill and couldn't go to work? Uh, what if I was seriously ill? What, what if there was uh, a serious car accident, blindness, loss of limb scenarios or you know, cancer, et cetera, scenarios, that sort of thing? Um, what, what if I died? And in each case, think about what the financial response to that would be. Um, so what would happen financially? What would be required for everything to be financially OK? Um, because that's really uh, the, the, the crux of the, the, the problem. Um, and then what I will do in discussions with doctors is I will talk to them about those questions, but then fill in some of the gaps with reference to what I know the NHS provides, um, death and service benefits, sick pay, um, you know, spouse, spoke, dependents, pensions, that sort of thing. Talk about what the NHS will provide and then work out the extent to which there is a gap. Um, and then once we've identified where those gaps exist, then we can work out how to fill them. Um, and that's what, what I will provide advice on. So as an independent advisor, having worked out where the gaps are, I have all options at my disposal to plug those gaps. Um, some of the solutions will be familiar to doctors. Uh, some of the solutions will be things that are only available via advisors. Um, but whatever the right solution is, I can source that and recommend it to, um, yeah, to, to the doctors. Awesome. Yeah. And I think that um, point that you made about working out what benefits doctors already have as part of the pension and sick pay and stuff mm -hmm. is, is vital because people that don't work with doctors a lot might not necessarily know that, you know, what the NHS pension provides, because it is pretty complicated. Um, yeah. And you're right. And, and I sometimes sit down with doctors who have received advice from a non-specialist -spec advisor and who've been recommended to take out something that's very similar to what the NHS is already giving them. So that is the very definition of wasting money. Um, so, yeah, medical specialist advice really comes comes into its own there. Yeah. And, you know, the non-specialist advisors probably didn't really, you know, the NHS pension is a very unusual situation. So the non-specialist advisors just didn't appreciate it. And then, as you say, people end up double paying for the cover. But yeah. should we talk about, you know, the NHS pension does provide good benefits, but very unlikely that that's going to be enough, right? It's very rarely the case, yes. So, um, so for example, death in service benefits. Um, if, if a doctor is a member of the NHS pension scheme and if they uh, die in service, by which I mean they die while they are a member of the scheme, they don't actually have to be working or, or in work when they die. Um, but um, yeah, so uh, then there is a death in service benefit paid. And for an active member, that is two times relevant or pensionable earnings. The definition depends slightly, but broadly, it's two times your pensionable earnings. So, um, you know, that's going to be a significant chunk of money. But if you're a doctor who has a mortgage and children and financial responsibilities, a lump sum of two times your annual income is probably not going to be enough. Um, and then there are also spouse and dependents pensions that come into payment as well. Um, and those amounts are nice to have. But for most doctors at most stages of their careers, they'll be pretty small, certainly a, a very small amount compared to what they're actually earning. Um, so as part of my discussion with specific doctors, I'll, I'll look at their total reward statement and work out what their spouse and dependents pensions would be in the event of their death. But um, yeah, I, I can't remember a time when they've looked at that and said, well, that would be enough. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and just broadly, have I got this right? Life insurance, self-explanatory, it pays out when you die. Um, income protection insurance pays out if you cannot work 
for and you know illness reasons um yeah. and then um critical illness pays out if you get a list of defined critical illnesses is that an oversimplification or no no that, that's what's on and so what that means is that income protection insurance is a more comprehensive cover than critical illness cover because you're right income protection insurance will pay out broadly for any reason of, of not being able to work um, there are sometimes exclusions on policies so sometimes if you apply for a policy and you've had some recent health condition then that will be excluded from a potential claim um but yeah broadly broadly you're right okay cool and um give me some sort of top tips or things that um you know you see mistakes that doctors make when they're getting protection so one of the things i wanted to talk about particularly in relation to this was was how i charge for advice in respect of protection and how doctors don't always get the best outcome um when when they when they work with advisors in this way so when it comes to advice in respect to protection policies, there are effectively two ways in which you can meet the cost of advice, um, either via a commission from the recommended providers um, or by paying a specific fee to the advisor to, to, to pay for the advice. Um, it's worth understanding the background to this. Um, I, I don't want to tread on Ed's toes. This isn't a tax trivia situation. This is a financial advisor trivia situation. But um, but yeah, this might be interesting nonetheless. So it's, it's worth understanding that 10 years ago, commission was common for all financial products. Um, and that led to, to bias. It, it led to advisors being motivated more by commission than by their clients' needs and wants. Um, and more than that, it led to a perception of bias as well. It meant that even advisors who were doing a good job that the client had in the back of their mind, is, is this really right for me or is the advisor motivated? for the wrong reasons. So in 2013, it was largely banned. Um, and so today, if you want independent advice on investments or pensions or tax planning or broadly anything else, you'll pay for that via a specific fee, um, but not financial protection. So the reason for that is that the regulator saw that if you needed a fee to, or if you had to pay a fee to get advice on life insurance, on income protection, et cetera, some people wouldn't be able to afford that. And that would mean that some people who needed advice wouldn't be able to get it. Um, so they left commission in place for financial protection products. Um, so keep that in mind when you're thinking about advice of this nature. Commission exists to help people who can't afford to pay for advice still receive it. Now, I'm going to say something now that might irritate some other advisors, but it's completely true. If you meet the cost of advice by a commission, you don't pay directly for that advice, but you do pay indirectly. Your premium will forever be higher as a result of having met the cost of advice via a commission rather than a fee. Or to put it another way, the cheapest cover is available by paying a fee for advice, because that means that the premium you pay for cover is only paying for cover. It's not paying for the, the cost of commission as well. So it's too simplistic to say that commission is good. Uh, sorry, uh, fees are good, commission are bad. Commission is bad. But it's important to understand when you make that decision, which option is going to be best for you. So, Tommy, imagine a doctor. Um, she's in her first year of specialty training. Uh, she rents her home. She's financially single. Uh, that is to say that she's not dependent on anyone else and no one is dependent on her. Um, so uh, you remember these days, young, free and single, no dependents? Uh, uh, vaguely. Um... You're looking wistful, Tommy. Well, I'm looking nervous because my son is peering through the window at the moment, looking like he's <laughs> going to come in and I haven't locked the door. So we might be interrupted. But yeah, I vaguely remember those days. They were a long time ago. So, Make the most um, of them is my tip. I, I bet. I bet. So um, <laughs> so a doctor in this situation, she probably doesn't need life insurance. Uh, no one's dependent on her. Um, so, uh, so life insurance probably isn't worth paying for. She probably should protect her income uh, because her income is what is going to deliver everything that you know she wants for her future. All her aspirations, her her goals are all dependent upon her work as a doctor. Um, but because she's young and healthy, and because her earnings are, are not that high at the moment, certainly not compared to where they will be, income protection is not going to be that expensive. It might cost around forty-five pounds a month on a commission basis. It might cost around thirty-five pounds a month if she chooses to meet the cost of advice via a fee. So about a £10 difference between the two. Uh, think about the same doctor a few years later, uh, but now she's married. Uh, her and her husband have bought a house together. Um, she's pregnant with their first child. Uh, her career is developing well. She's, she's getting closer to, to, uh, to completing training. Um, so life has moved on quite significantly. So 
now she probably does need life insurance because her and her husband are dependent upon each other. They have a mortgage. They have responsibilities to each other. Um, she probably needs a bit more income protection because she's about to have significant increase in cost with uh, childbirth, etc. Her husband probably needs income protection as well if he doesn't have it already. Uh, they probably do need to consider some level of critical illness cover because if, if really serious things happen, then it's not just them that are affected any longer. Um, so as a couple, they could easily be spending more than £200 a month on a, a suitable suite of insurance. And working with an advisor on a fee basis could save them £40 to £50 a month. So the savings for, for, being, um, for working on a fee basis are quite significantly higher. Now, at Sunrise, my, my fees, our fees for advice of this nature starts at £1,250. Um, so that's not a small amount of money. But when you're potentially saving £40, £50 a month, after a few years, you're going to be better off. If you're keeping co cover in place for you know, potentially 10, 15, 20 years, then you're going to be significantly better off having paid a fee at outset. Um, and it's really important to understand that and make the right decision. I mean, it, the, the doctor in her late 20s, um, potentially saving £10 a month, well, that's a situation where commission is just easier, more, more suitable. Um, but for doctors, as they develop into their careers, as things get more expensive, paying a fee can really work out better. Yeah. And, and this is what we need more of from your industry, not you, but your industry. We need more transparency. Yeah. So we already talked about independent versus restricted. So if restricted is not a problem, put it on your website, tell us why it's so great and wait for that to happen. But we need transparency about the fees. And this is a big thing for us at Medics Money. Uh, you display all of your fees on Medics Money or an indication thereof. Um, and that's really, really rare in in this industry is not rare on medics money a lot of our advisors display fees but why do you think your colleagues or i'm not going to say colleagues is not working with you but what why is your industry notoriously opaque about fees because it really annoys us and it annoyed yeah. me and ed so much that we decided to set up medics money <laughs> um but why are you being so opaque about it yeah, it, it annoys me too tommy I, th I think the answer is simple it's because when when you work so the example of um, of the doctors paying a couple of hundred pounds a month for a suite of protection products, uh, if they work on a commission basis, then the commission generated is probably quite a lot of money. I'm sure some doctors can recognize sitting down with an advisor and, and spotting that the commission is going to be, you know, four, five, six thousand pounds, something like that. Um, and, and the advisor might have said, well, yeah, but you're not really paying for that because it's all built into the cost of the contract. But you are paying for that. You're paying for it through your premium over the life of the, the time that you're paying for cover. Um, so I think the answer simply is because it can mean that advisors can earn quite a lot of money in a way that is not transparent. But that's not right. And, and it should be doctors should understand what it is that, that they are um, entering into and understand both options. Yeah, I think there's an analogy between when we consent a patient for a treatment, okay, we are duty bound to tell the patient the benefits of that procedure, the risks of that procedure, um, and is there any alternative options which may be suitable or not. And I think if, uh, you know, that's a good model to follow for financial advice, your financial advisor should consent you for your financial decisions. So here's the options. And I love your example of the uh, young free and single doctor who like they just don't need life insurance, but people will come up to them and try and sell them three million pounds of life insurance cover on their first day as an F1. That is not, you know, that is not good. Um, so yeah, um, we're getting pretty ranty here and I'm definitely going to be getting a ton of emails from restricted advisors now. So we, be we, we, we better move on. Um, but I think this is really, really, really important stuff. Yeah, I, I agree. So I think that to, to give some general guidance as to, to when the different options might suit. So, so when to choose commission? Well, when, when you're younger, when you're paying less overall, when your circumstances are uncertain. So um, I'll sometimes talk to doctors who are not exactly sure which direction their career is going to go in, where they're going to live. They might be spending time overseas. Um, you know, all, all sorts of things could happen. Well, if your circumstances are uncertain, then actually paying a fee for advice and then needing to pay a fee again in a couple of years is probably not very good value. Um, or the final thing is, if you are if you're unhealthy, if you might not get cover, um, then that's something to talk about with your advisor because uh, there are situations in which uh, having a speculative application where uh, that will generate commission if everything is accepted and, and if, if it isn't accepted, then then it won't. That, that can be the best way to work. So 
yeah, so that's something to think about. Um, when to choose a fee uh, when your circumstances are more predictable, when your life is, is is getting sorted, when you've done things like you know bought a house and, and got your career and got your location and that sort of thing. Uh, when the overall cost of cover is 150, 200 pounds a month or more. Um, when when you're healthy and you're confident that you're going to be accepted. Um, one of the, the big problems with cover is that you can take out something earlier on in your life when, when you're healthy and everything just goes through and then you need to change it a few years later, but something's happened and actually now you, you wouldn't be accepted in the same way. Um, so yes, it's good to get things right when you are healthy enough that you're confident you can be accepted. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like a lot of things starting early, unfortunately, um, is the way to go. Um, Okay, now here's something I want to pick up on that you said. So you said your fee for protection is £1,200. Okay, so... £1,250 as a starting point, yeah. Sorry. Um, So... That why why where does that cost come from? Why is it why is it so much? Why so much? Fair enough. Yeah. So it's worth understanding what it involves to to run a financial advice company. So there are lots of costs that advisors need to meet. Um, I mean, there are regulatory costs. So uh, Sunrise IFA is regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. Anyone that advises you must be regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. And I know all the advisors on all Medics Money are. Um, regulation has a cost. So the FCA levy uh, fees uh, each year. Um, those fees are partly to cover the cost of regulation. There's also the Financial Services Compensation Scheme levy, which is effectively a cost that my business pays to cover advice given from businesses that are no longer in business because they failed, um, which is something that that rankles a little bit because I'm effectively paying for poor quality former advisors. Um, but nonetheless, that's a cost that that has to be paid by my business. Um, and both of those costs have gone up significantly in the last couple of years. Uh, professional indemnity insurance is a massive cost for my business. Professional indemnity insurance is effectively the insurance that I have to buy to, I don't need to tell doctors this, you all have professional indemnity cover as well, Uh, but I need to have it in place for my business and uh, it needs to provide a theoretical maximum of £1.3 million per claim. Uh, I'm not quite sure what I could do that could result in 1.3 million pounds worth of loss, but um, but yeah, that's the net, the level of of cover that the regulator insists that I have. Um, so as you can imagine, that's a significant cost to the business. Um, and then there are other things that I need to buy in as well. So uh, as you know, doctors have to have their work reviewed and quality assessed from time to time, the same is exactly true of advisors. Uh, but that's a cost that I need to pay for within the business. Uh, I need to buy research tools and, and access to the things that I can. Uh, make use of to provide independent advice to to research the markets um, to, to provide that advice um, and then of course those doctors that have received one of my reports know how much detail has gone into as well so advice isn't just about saying you should buy this advice is about putting together a very detailed report that says this is your situation and this is what you should buy and these are all the reasons why um, there's a lot of work that goes into it so so I would say that the cost of existing as a business is several thousand pounds a month, even for a small business like mine. Um, and that's before you add the time taken involved in a proper recommendation. So I accept that it's not a small amount of money, but there's a lot of a lot of reason behind that. Yeah, I think a big part of Medics Money is the right advice for the right price. Uh, yeah. You can always get it cheaper. Someone in the pub will probably tell you do it for free, um, but it's not regulated. It doesn't come with any of those benefits that Guy just mentioned. So, um, but it's it's useful to ask these questions about where those costs come from. So that was really good. So before we wrap up about talking about protection, any other mm-hmm. pearls of wisdom that you wanted to share with us? Um, well, I thought I'd share some of the the mistakes that I see people making. Um, so you've already mentioned one of them, actually, Tommy, leaving things too late um, or having insufficient <laughs> cover in place. Um, so, I mean, and, but it's strange. I still sometimes sit down with doctors who are quite late into their career who who know you guys know better than anyone else that that health is not to be taken for granted, that unexpected things do happen. Um, and yet I will sometimes sit down with doctors who just don't have the right things that they should have in place. Um I would say that an emphasis on life insurance, you sort of touched on that earlier as well. So, so life insurance is really easy for people un- to understand because it's binary, isn't it? You know, you're either alive or dead. If you're alive, it doesn't pay out. If you're dead, it does. Um, life insurance is also cheap um, because statistically, you're much less likely to die than you are to be unwell or suffer a critical illness. So yeah, so it's cheap. So um, I will sometimes see people with lots of life insurance that they've decided to buy and and then nothing else in place, nothing else covered appropriately, which is a a common mistake. 
And then the final thing is not reviewing things as circumstances change. So it is important to make sure that as your circumstances change, as you buy a bigger house, as you have a bigger family, as as things change in your career, that you make sure that what you have in place is still suitable. Uh, when I advise doctors on, on the right cover for them, I will try as best I can to put in place something that's flexible for what might happen in their future. Uh, but it is important to, to keep things under review um, to make sure that, that you have um, protection that continues to be as suitable as possible. I'm going to add another one, um, a cheeky little one. Uh, <laughs> I'm feeling controversial this morning. If you got your protection policy from a restricted advisor, or you're not sure if your advisor is restricted or independent, mm-hmm. Get a requote from an independent advisor, okay? Uh, because then let let's see what's best for you, okay? Because if you if you got your policy from a restricted advisor, as Guy said, they only have a limited range of products to sell you, and if you happen to fit the criteria for one of their products, you're probably all right. But if you don't, you're probably overpaying. So why not find out if your advisor was independent and restricted, and they might be being a bit opaque about it for whatever reason, uh, and get a quote from an independent advisor. Um, and let's, you know, straight up comparison, let's see what's best for the doctor. Yeah, and, and that, why not get a quote on both a commission basis and a fee basis so you can make an informed decision about whether it's better for you to uh, meet the cost of advice via a fee or via commission. Uh, because any independent advisor can work with you on both bases. Uh, restricted advisors can't necessarily, which is another reason not to work with them. They are often only able to work on a commission basis. Uh, but an independent advisor can work with you on both bases and, and should be happy to talk about both. Guy, we're going to get taken off air if we get much more <laughs> controversial. You know, the industry doesn't want doctors to know these secrets. <laughs> They're exposing their secrets. Okay, so we got to move on because, yeah. We'll be a pirate radio station before long, but it's really important that we talk about this. This is actually yeah. pretty serious. And as I said, me and Ed were so motivated by this that we started Made Us Money. So that was really useful. Let's talk about something else, which I know that you're really passionate about. Um, mm-hmm. So we already talked about ethical investing pretty much before ethical investing was cool, because uh, that was about a year ago we talked about Absolutely, that on the podcast. Yeah. And in, the, in that year, everyone's going ethical, it seems. But It's totally come into its own, hasn't it? Yeah, um, definitely. So um, kudos for being ahead of the game there. But let's say I'm a doctor and I want to get started with investing. What do you actually do that I can't do for myself? <laughs> okay. So well, first thing to say is that investing is never the first point on the agenda. Um, so it can only be discussed properly once you've thought about income versus expenditure, once you've thought about emergency funds in place, once you've thought about suitable protection being in place, uh, once once you've thought about short-term goals, um, it, it, it would be utterly wrong to, to just think about what to invest in without first thinking about the other aspects of the financial foundation. Um, investment starts effectively working out what is spare. So uh, if you don't have an emergency fund in place, if you haven't appropriately protected yourself if you haven't um, covered off other short-term goals then then how can you possibly work out what's fair Um, if a doctor plans to buy a house in the next year or so i will rarely advise them on investments because how can you work out what's fair you know how much how do you know how much the house is going to cost how do you know what additional work you're going to have to do legal fees etc same with home improvement work or plans to start a business venture until you can be certain what's fair you can't have a conversation about investment so that's the first part. Uh, once you've identified what is surplus, then it's about objective setting. So what is the money for? Or more specifically, often, when is it for? Uh, what is it? What, what and when is it going to be used for? Um, and once there's some level of clarity around that, then I can give advice. Now, the methodology around how we give investment advice was one of the most critical parts of how I constructed Sunrise IFA. And this was born out of seeing weaknesses in how other advisors have given investment advice over the years and, and how clients are not necessarily being well served by, by how things have been done before. So I believe that most independent advisors can give satisfactory investment advice on day one. Uh, most doctors, when receiving investment advice from an independent advisor, will receive something that's suitable for them at outset. Uh, restricted advisors, again, I'm going to clobber them once more, but um, restricted advisors is much less certain because remember, they only have a, a limited range of things that they can recommend. So will that thing that they recommend be the most suitable for, for the doctor? It's questionable, at least. 
but independent advisors, I generally think that uh, at the end of the meeting, when they've recommended the investments and, and everyone smiled and shaken hands and, and completed the paperwork, yeah, that will be uh, likely to be a, a suitable investment at, at outset. The problems start further down the line because investments need oversight. You know, markets change, opportunities present themselves, actions are required. Um, and so things need to be tweaked and tended to to make sure that investments continue to do what it is that they're set up to do. And sometimes things are set up with the intention to review, but that doesn't always happen in the way that it should do. And I think that is a big weakness of investment advice. Now, I think, sadly, partly, that's because sometimes advisors don't follow through on the commitments that they've made. But I'm also really conscious that it's because doctors are busy. Yeah. Um, so you know, if if you're if you've received investment advice in the past, uh, and if you imagine getting a phone call from your advisor and your advisor says, I want to come and talk to you, we need to make some changes to your portfolio. Well, you might think, well, I'm a bit busy at the moment. You know, can it wait a few weeks? Can it wait a few months? Can it wait till after summer, after half term, after Christmas? Um, eventually, you're going to reach a stage where you're not going to be able to give it the focus that it requires. And what that means is that things don't happen when they should do. Um, sometimes advisors will tends to portfolios as part of an annual review, but a year is a really long time. You end up in a situation where you're only making changes once a year. Well, a lot can happen in the meantime, and it can mean that changes can be far too late. So I firmly believe that investments perform best when they're watched over by an expert, where necessary changes can happen quickly without needing input from doctors each time. And there are lots of different ways to accomplish that. There are different solutions that will be available and suitable for different doctors. Um, but it's really important that there is some process to, to make changes quickly and uh, strategically, tactically at the time that they need to be made. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we mentioned ethical investing briefly, and uh, episode nine is all about ethical investing with Guy. But mm. should we talk a bit about how ethical investing is different from traditional investing? Yeah. So when doctors specifically want to talk about ethical investments, then everything that I've just said is just as applicable, but we'll also have an additional part of the conversation. And that's about what investing ethically means to them. Um, and there are some doctors who have very clear ideas about things that they don't want to invest in because that's not where they want to see their money invested. Um, and that's fine. And then part of my expertise as an independent advisor is to align their wishes and, and desires to the solutions that are out there to pick something that, that matches what they want. Um, it's also true to say that some doctors are more relaxed about the specifics, but just want the general theme of their investments to be ethical, responsible, to, to not involve um, things that, that have been deemed irresponsible. And, and that's fine, too. There are lots of solutions out there that are um, positioned in that way. And, and as part of presenting advice in those areas, I will say that this is how your investment is constructed. And these are the things that are excluded um, and, and the reasons why. So, yeah. Yeah. and. Uh, I like passive investments. Uh, let's not get into active versus passive today. We've done too much controversial. But is there any passive ESG funds yet? And do you think there will be? Talk to us a bit about, for those of us that love passive uh, versus yeah. active. That's a good question. So um, part of the rise of, of ethical stroke ESG investing and the increase in popularity has meant that some providers have now started to release uh, passive ESG type funds. So uh, low cost funds that access many, many different ethical stroke ESG rated investments. Um, I think that some doctors would be surprised at the things that are included in some of those funds. So for example, there was recently um, a case of quite a popular well-known ESG themed fund that was investing in fossil fuels uh, because the screening criteria that that particular fund manager had chosen to apply didn't screen out fossil fuels. Um, I suspect that most people who were invested in that fund would have expected fossil fuels to be excluded. That's quite a common thing for, for not being invested in from an ethical stroke ESG perspective. Um, but but it was included in this fund and that got a bit of, um, uh, there's a bit of controversy around that. So there are funds that exist that are passive, low cost, that are designed to be ethically screened but they are not always ethically screened in the way that you might expect them to be. And therefore, they aren't always the right option for people who are motivated by those things. Yeah. Um, massive tangent alert coming up. I was <laughs> listening to um, 
the Terry Smith speak at the Fundsmith Annual General Meeting. Um, this is a kind of fascinating thing I do in my spare time, but I, I actually quite like listening to those. They're quite useful. He's an interesting guy, not a recommendation or anything like that, of course. But um, somebody asked him about his holding in Philip Morris, and he ended up trying to justify that that was ethical because they were working hard on making e-cigarettes. Uh, I, I like Terry Smith. I think he speaks a lot of sense. Uh, not a recommendation, etc. But that was ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. come on. Um, Morris International, the tobacco company behind Marlboro cigarettes. Yeah, uh, is is an ethical investment. Yeah, because they're I, inventing. I think I'm skeptical as well. Yeah, they're inventing e-cigarettes, so that's how Terry Smith justified it to himself. But anyway, um, massive tangent. Back but, but, on. But there's a really good point there, Tommy, which is that you need to make sure that if you want to invest ethically, that your ethical preferences are are aligned to what you invest in. Um, and there's a big issue at the moment in the ethical investment space, which is something called greenwashing. And greenwashing is where people will try to position investments as being ethical as having ethical credentials. So what Terry Smith was doing in that situation was greenwashing Philip Morris International. Um, and yeah, you need to be really careful of that. But that is the biggest problem that faces ethical investing at the moment because it's become so popular. Everyone wants a slice of the pie and will do anything to get it. Yeah. Terry, if you're listening, I would absolutely love to have you on the podcast. Um, <laughs> he's probably not listening. Um, okay. Uh, since we're blowing the doors off transparency-wise today, yeah. uh, can we talk about fees? Why not? Why not? So, um, yeah, I mean, when receiving investment advice, it's really important that investments are kept under review. And therefore, it's very common to pay for ongoing investment advice. And I think most doctors would be served by having their investments reviewed on a regular basis to make sure that they continue to be suitable, they continue to meet their objectives. In fact, Tommy, one of the biggest mistakes that doctors make is not reviewing financial arrangements once they've been put in place. Um, I have on occasion met doctors who have set up investments 20 years into the past and then have just left it all that time um, thinking, well, I, I hope it's all right, but I don't really understand and I, I don't want to receive any further advice. And, and usually it's quite clear that the I'm going to say losses, but they haven't usually lost money. They just haven't made nearly as much as they might otherwise have done. Um, so, you know, which is an which is a, an underperformance. You know, like precisely. if you are, you know, so you you've out, you're not lost, but you've underperformed. So let's be clear about that. Right. Um, yeah. So so not not having your investments reviewed, not not keeping up with with changing markets and conditions can can be a really significant thing. So so having ongoing advice in relation to your investments is really important. Um, it's common to pay for ongoing investment advice as a percentage of, of the money invested. Um, so paying 1% per annum is, is quite common. Um, at Sunrise, we charge less, but, but I know that some doctors and their advisors agree 1% per annum, and I don't see a problem with that. I, I know there are some great advisors out there um, who charge 1% of the assets under management per annum um, for providing ongoing investment advice and, and they and their clients are happy with that. Um, I, what I would quickly say though is that if you're paying more than one percent to your advisor, no matter how much how it's dressed up, you, you are, in my opinion, overpaying. So there are some advisors that have taken it upon themselves to find extra ways of charging doctors more money for various things, um, you know, with an advice charge and then an XYZ charge and an ABC charge. Um, I, I think there's no two ways about it. And I would encourage any doctors who are paying more than 1% of their advisor to seek a second opinion, um, because there's really no reason. It's important to receive ongoing advice, but you don't want to pay too much for it. Definitely. Um, part of Medics Money due diligence, when someone applies to join, we look at their fees and the 1%, over 1%, it's a deal breaker for us because, yeah, uh, again, it, the right advice for the right price, uh, 1% or less uh, is reasonable. Anything more, uh, I don't think is reasonable um, and neither does Guy. Um, so I think, again, let's just get transparent on it. Ask your advisor, what are you paying and why? Um, so are we going to talk about fixed fee as well? Because there's another, you could do 1% AUM assets under management, which is what you just described. Some people yeah. do fixed fee. Should we talk about the pros and cons of that? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, when I give, um, upfront advice in respect of investment, so the, the initial advice, I would call it the advice in respect of how someone should be invested at outset. 
then I will always charge a specific monetary amount for that um, because that that aligns my interests with my clients. Um, I've charged a specific fee. The fee is the same regardless of what I recommend, and therefore that emphasizes my independence because I have no interest in recommending anything over anything else. My, my fee is exactly the same. Uh, when it comes to ongoing advice, actually, I do tend to charge on a percentage basis because that also aligns my interest with my clients, as in the more money that, that my advice can make for them with the, the growth in the value of the investments means that the more money that I earn. Um, and that is, I think, therefore, more aligned than a specific monetary amount, which would be the same regardless of whether investments were going up or down um, in regards to the quality advice. Um, but but yes, it is it is possible to receive advice on via a percentage or fixed fee basis. And again, an independent advisor should talk to you about which which option is right for you. Absolutely, yeah, definitely. And again, you know, just have the conversation. You, you're empower, We're empowering you with the knowledge that you need. Okay, so you know that one percent or more, more than one percent. Mm. So yeah, um, okay, that was really good. Um, we let's try to keep non-controversial. Um, <laughs> so what are what are your top tips for investment? If I come and see you, like, where are we going to start? Goals and let's talk about portfolio construction and all of that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, let's let's touch on the, the the big mistakes that I see doctors making when it comes to investment. So, the first mistake is is not investing. Um, I hundred percent, hundred percent. So, once once investing is right for you, once you've got all the other boxes sorting out, then then having in place some some investment that gives your wealth the chance to grow in excess of inflation is really important. Um, I will sometimes meet doctors who have saved up quite significant amounts in cash um, because they understand, you know, because they're naturally safe. They have a saving mentality, which is which is great, which is really important. They understand that they can build up money in, in different bank accounts with different rates of interest. And that's that's clear and comfortable to them. But they don't really understand investments and therefore they haven't invested any money. And the you know, that just means a real terms loss each and every year. I mean, if if you have a hundred thousand pounds in cash, if it's sat in the bank earning zero percent interest, and if inflation is two percent a year, then you are losing two thousand pounds each year um, through through inaction. So, wouldn't it be worth paying for some advice to to give you the chance of of exceeding inflation? Um, so yeah, so that's that's I think the biggest uh, mistake that doctors make. Um, Another mistake is not reviewing investments. So I've spoken before about meeting doctors who've invested 20 years ago and then um, they're not done anything about it since. Um, that's clearly an extreme example, but investments should be kept under review. Um, when I meet a doctor who's had investment advice in the past and then not looked at it, I can often guess roughly when the advice was based on what they're invested in. It'll be whatever was in vogue at the time. Um, and I'm usually right within a year or two. Um, so, but that that's a clear indication that as to why things need to be kept under review, because if something was right, you know, five, 10, 15 years ago, is it still right today? It's not necessarily the case. Um, accepting poor service and paying paying too much for it. So we've touched on fees already, but I think also if, if you're not confident that what you are paying for is, um, if, if you're not confident that the amount you're paying is, is good value for what you're receiving, then that's a reason to seek a second opinion. I mean, with Medics Money, there are lots of advisors across the country who specialize in medical advice and, and who can provide you with good quality, independent advice. So if you don't think that what you're getting is, is good value for money, get a second opinion. I'm sure I and any Medics Money advisor would be happy to provide it. Um, I think, yeah, that's, that's yeah. a good summary. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and do you want to talk, I mean, we've talked a, bit, a little bit about this, your investing philosophy or sort of mm -hmm. strategy, because we talked about ESG, we touched on active and passive. Yeah. Do you want to drill into that a little bit? I know we're getting late into the podcast now, but uh, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that. Okay. So uh, investment methodology is, is principally about assessing someone's attitude to risk. So um, I'll talk to all doctors about their their views on their views on risk and their ability to accept losses within a portfolio, because it's important to understand that when you invest money and you take risk, the intention is for it to grow over time. But when you take risk, there is the, always the potential for loss. So understanding how much loss can be tolerated within a portfolio um, is really important. Um, and then from there, it will be about selecting assets that match that view of risk. Um, so you know, we, we've spoken before about diversification, about being invested 
not just in one stock market, i.e. not just in the UK stock market, but in, in global stock markets to the level that's right. Uh, it's about being invested not just in stocks and shares, but in other assets as well, be that uh, government bonds, be it corporate bonds, be it you know, alternative investments. Uh, there's, a, there's a place for commercial property in portfolios sometimes. Um, there can be a place for commodities and, and, and other things as well. So it's about building a portfolio that's that's right for someone's attitude to risk uh, and objectives for the money. Uh, and then it's about keeping it under review because, as I say, things change. Yeah. And I think matching your portfolio to your circumstances and your risk mm. is totally vital because you're going to have to stick with this plan for the long term through thick and thin. You know, COVID might happen again. The, the yeah. stock market does go up and down. Uh, Traditionally, over time, it's mostly gone up, not advice or anything. Obviously, future performance may not, um, past performance may not project, <laughs> predict future performance is what you guys always say. But then basically, mm. the whole thing is based on that premise, which I never quite understand. But <laughs> yeah, I think getting that portfolio right for the individual is really important so that they can stick with it through thick and thin. All and, right, and it's guys. Something, it's, forgive me, Tommy, but it's something that I see doctors not giving the um, the right level of, of significance to. So um, when you put in place a portfolio, it should be a well thought out portfolio. It's not a case of just selecting an investment that hoping it goes up, but, but rather it's about selecting a, a wide range of investments with the best possible chance for returns over the right time, time horizon. And then it's about having a strategy that's over several, you know, multiple years, a multi-year strategy. Um, one of the mistakes that I see doctors making is investing in something because they hope it goes up. And then if it falls in value, then they will sell it. And 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 then um, you know, perhaps at some point in the future, the markets will rise and then they'll buy back in because they'll get more confidence. And of course, what they've done there is they've um, sold high and uh, sorry, sold, sold low and bought high uh, and therefore got a really bad outcome. Um, a good investment strategy doesn't involve any panicking. A good investment, panic is not a good strategy. So you should put in place something that's right for the long term, and then you should adjust it as required, but broadly you should stick with it. Um, oh, and a final top tip for investment, uh, the power of regular saving. So uh, I'm not generally someone that favors you know, simply making lump sum investments. Lump sum investments have a place, but actually regular saving, regular investing for doctors who usually have consistent income, who can usually identify some level of consistent surplus, regular saving, really powerful. Yep. Uh, regular saving, compound interest, above inflation returns. That's yep. it, right? Simple. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Guy, that was so good um, to catch up with all of that. Um, so if people want to get hold of you, uh, especially restricted advisors who uh, don't, bother, <laughs> don't bother emailing me, just email Guy, take it up with Guy, right? Uh, <laughs> should I drop your contact details in the uh, show notes? Yes, please do. Um, and of course, I can be found by Medics Money as well. Of course. Okay. Uh, thank you so much for your time today, Guy. That was really good. Uh, it, it's really refreshing uh, to have this level of transparency and open discussion about all of this, because I think the analogy with consenting patients it is a valid one. You know, uh, you your financial advisor should be consenting you to the same level that you consent your patients. You should understand what the benefits are, what the risks are, any alternative strategies, what the costs are and why. Uh, and if they haven't done that, you know, get back to them or ask them some awkward questions, which hopefully they'll be getting awkward questions as a result or, of this podcast. Or, or get a second opinion. Why not? Exactly. Second opinion. Perfect. All right. Thank you so much, Guy. Uh, really look forward to catching up with you again on the podcast in due course. Thank you, Tommy. Appreciate it.